just before we uh, read, you know, where we're going to, just turn with me to Proverbs chapter 31. And sometimes I think God has a tremendous sense of humor. Proverbs chapter 31. chapter 31. Okay. And here we find um, Proverbs chapter 31, all right? Uh, we get some advice on first aid. If you read verse 6. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, <laughs> and wine unto those that be of heavy heart. Now, I never knew that a brandy, just as someone's about to flake out, was biblical, but there you are. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Um, you know, that's in Proverbs. So if w anyone tells you that it's wrong to give strong drink to a person who's dying, just, just carry on. <laughs> um, you find all sorts of things in the Bible, don't you? All recommendations. Nothing wrong with it, is there? That's why they have St. Bernard's going around the Alps. <laughs> Trouble is, you know, the Irish visited it one year and now there's no whiskey in the flasks. <laughs> but that's all that we can say. Okay, just, just kind of is something I noticed there and it, I found it quite amusing. But there you are. You might not have done. Uh, some of you look as though you could do with a strong drink, faces. Um, people look ready to perish quite often perishing people. Uh, Romans chapter 7 verse 1 uh, I remember we're dealing with Revelation and Romans in uh, about faces, in other words we're doing it Revelation and then Romans Revelation, Romans. Okay know you not, brethren for I speak to them that know the law, how the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives and you remember we talked last time about the fact that the law we're talking about isn't Mosaic law, but it is the law of God, uh, the moral law of God. Now, everyone inside themselves has a conscience. Uh, you've got a conscience. Now, basically, what is your conscience? Hmm? that which tells you what's right and what's wrong and basically your angel stirs up your conscience but I don't want to necessarily go into that but I mean that's really what it is now most people right from birth know the right from wrong and we're talking here about law and moral law and you will see that for a woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as she he liveth but if the husband be dead she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. In other words, a woman who's, who's uh, married, if she goes and she marries someone else while her husband's alive, then she'll be an adulteress. Uh, that's speaking of uh, the law as it was, of course, you remember Christ gave, um, said that the bill of divorcement was given that for the hardness of people's hearts, 
Uh, and of course, if you get unbelievers and believers marrying, you will get problems. And therefore, there is often no way but separation. And I don't want to go into that, but we're talking about a woman married uh, is bound to her husband as long as she lives. Uh, and then Paul goes on in verse 4, he says, Wherefore, my brethren, you are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, how many people have ever wondered why that verse is put there? Or have anyone noticed what's wrong? There you are, you see, you read it and you don't know what you're reading. Notice anything that's wrong? It's all right, there's no spelling mistake in the authorised version, don't look for that. Uh, That's right. And so what's the contradiction? Hmm? We're dead. Hmm? Pardon? Mm. Yeah, but hasn't Christ died for us? It's quite interesting, isn't it, when you think about it. The analogy is totally wrong. Um, because if it, we're the bride of Christ in, in, in the pictorial sense so surely it should have been the first part of the chapter why didn't he say that the uh, uh, woman the husband was bound to the woman why did he say the woman was bound to the husband as long as the husband lives why didn't he say the, the um, man was bound to the woman as long as the woman lives Pardon? No. Of course he wasn't. <laughs> you know, actually, your deduction's brilliant. <laughs> to state the obvious, uh, there's no way that Christ was bound to us, and he was bound by no law to us. And a woman is the only one that's bound in marriage. <laughs> according to scripture I mean us married men know better I mean you know it's meant to be that the woman's under the law of her husband uh, and that's true from the spiritual point of view from the real point of view dear father deliver us but um, you know what I mean no husband can really say a woman 
basically should always obey her husband in everything. A woman, that's her real place, Mary, before God. You could see the look on Rob's face sitting here. Um, and, and a woman's meant to, you know, a woman's meant to do what the husband says. <laughs> and she's meant to totally submit herself. But if that's so, it's strange, isn't it, that it changed to wherefore, my brethren, you are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Isn't it strange? It changes. Hmm? Have you never noticed that? Thought, well, you see, you don't notice very much. It's obvious, really, isn't it? When you think, but, you know, most people don't... <coughs> hmm? It's the analogy that's wrong, Albert, isn't it? First part. Yeah, but you've missed the whole point. <laughs> that's what I like about you people. Uh, John, you've missed the point, have you? Okay, well, let's explain it. See, for Albert, who's a doctor, and for John, who's fitting carpets, we will explain it, you see. Now, it just shows you, doesn't it? <laughs> Look, let me explain in verse 2. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. All right? Now, that's talking about the woman. Now, who, basically, in the picture of the church and, and the bride of Christ, who are we? The bride. Okay. So, what was the, would the analogy naturally apply from, imply from that? What? That if the husband died, we'd be free. And yet, when we come to the fulfillment of the analogy in verse 4, he goes on to say, Wherefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married to another. So the analogy of the man dying that the woman might be free to remarry is totally turned on its head by the fact that it's the bride that's to be married to another. Isn't it? And do you follow that, John? Do you follow that, Albert? You followed that before, did you? Hmm? You were trying to look at it in another way. Well, that's helpful. That really is helpful. But do you follow it this way now? I mean, it's, it is important that you understand what I'm saying. Because I have a big enough problem. Um, <laughs> sometimes wondering whether you do understand anything. All right. So, why is the analogy changed round? Well, come on. Pardon? Y 
I think that's very logical to say if a bride's dead, she can't marry again. I, I think even I could agree with that. Uh, it somewhat evades the point. <laughs> but it is true. <laughs> You've got a lot of truth out here, you know, which uh, it's helpful. Have you ever, you see, when you start looking at things, they don't always appear. You read it a hundred times and you just don't notice uh, something that seems so strange. Isn't that true? How many people have noticed it before? You'd noticed it before. Okay, what conclusion did you come to? <laughs> Your books didn't help you, okay. What about you, Eric? Did you? Really? Yeah, you were puzzled, weren't you? Yeah. What about you? Who else put up their hand? You noticed it but left it. That's a very smart thing to do. Okay, now why do you think that it was reversed around the other way? Anyone got any ideas? If the old man's died, you can marry someone. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I, <laughs> I'd never thought of that. <laughs> That's the way you... <laughs> if the wife phones the old man's died, <laughs> it's all right, she can remarry. <laughs> <laughs> sure does. <laughs> I don't think you follow the joke, do you, Rob? Poor Rob, he's the only one that doesn't get it. <laughs> That's what they call a husband, the old man. <laughs> um, well, really, the, the thing that I want to point out to you is that no analogy is perfect. And the reason Paul used this analogy and then went on and said wherefore, you know, which is uh, um, really a summary of something, it's a conclusion of something. But you see, you can never get a perfect analogy uh, because all things always fall down. Uh, there's always something wrong with an analogy. Now, obviously, Christ was never bound by us to anything and, and in the Hebrew uh, uh, race, a wife was always subservient, which is the way she should be. And that was the way God designed things. And, and so, you see, Paul uses that analogy. And having used that analogy, he then wants to draw a conclusion. But basically what he's drawing a conclusion from is us married to what? the law you see know you not brethren I speak
for I speak to them that know the law, how the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. It's not your old man, it's the law. And what we've got to become dead to is the law. In other words, the law is the thing, the moral law, our moral law, is the thing that keeps us away from Christ. The thing that causes people or stops people from coming into a relationship with God is the moral law. Now, we don't often look at it like that, but the law, um, we become dead to the law, and the law becomes dead to us in a sense. Um, the most important thing is we become dead to the law. It's not our old man that's important, it's the law. Do you understand that? Your old man is your sin nature. And your sin nature naturally um, is totally alien to the things of God. And the thing that deals with your sin nature and the thing that gives power to sin is what? What is the strength of sin? The law. And so to get delivered from sin, what I need is deliverance from the law, don't I? Hmm? Now, I don't need deliverance from the law in the sense of making it null and of no effect. What I need deliverance from is the power and the strength of the law that causes sin to abound. Because sin abounds where the law is, doesn't it? The law comes, sin abounds, and I die. And so what I need death from, I need death from the law. I need to die to the law. Now if I die to the law, what does that mean? You... Free from whose dominion? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Free from what? Yeah, what of the law? No. Free from what of the law? You said it once. The dominion. Now, what is dominion. It's where law reigns. Now law, we're talking about moral law. It's, it, we're free from the place where the moral law reigns and rules. And its power has dominion. Now what you have to understand is because we're free from that, are we free from law? Okay, what law are we under? The law of the in hath set me free from the I see. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So if I come out from one law, what I've immediately got to do is come into a greater law, haven't I? Now there's a law of sin and death. It's rather like the law of aerodynamics, which I'm sure you've all heard about, um, and people explain it often in that way, whereas um, if you take about 10 tonne of metal and 
you uh, try and lift it off the ground, it won't work. Have you ever tried lifting 10 ton of metal off the ground? I haven't either. Um, but if you uh, take it to a factory and you work on it and you produce a jumbo jet, the thing looks grotesque. And yet, once you start the engines up, there's a new power working in it, and that mass of metal will take off, won't it, when you get to a certain speed. I think it's about 350 miles an hour, and up it goes. And now, it basically, the law of gravity, which was the law that held the jumbo jet in its place, was made null and void when a greater law came, the law of aerodynamics lifted it off the ground. Now, it broke free from the dominion or the rule of gravity, didn't it? And it came off the ground. Is that not so? Now, what happens, it doesn't mean that the law of gravity ceased to operate, because if you turn the engines off, you'll discover it hasn't. But what has happened is a greater law has come along and said, all right, that law of sin and death that t was going to take me to hell uh, is null and void because a greater law has come. And in a sense, we die to the law and we become dead to the law by the body of Christ that we might be married to another, even to him who raised up, um, who was raised, uh, who's raised up from the dead. Um, but the thing is that though we're married to another, what I want to point out is we became dead to the law, that's the law of sin and death, and the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set us free from that law, but that doesn't mean that that law ceases to um, have power. It does have power, but we're living in a way where that law doesn't affect us in the way it used to. But if we cease to walk in the spirit, we will find gravity will still be there. If you turn the engines off, bang, down you go. You find the power's still there. It's just that you've found a greater way of living. You'll follow what I'm saying? And so what people haven't realized is that there is a law that we've become dead to in the same way that a jumbo jet really becomes dead to the law of gravity. It defies the law of gravity, doesn't it? Hmm? Wouldn't you say it defies the law of gravity? Look at a jumbo jet. When it's a mass of metal and it's standing there, it, it looks impossible. It's rather like a bumblebee. Now, basically, you look at a bumblebee. A bumblebee can't fly according to any law, but it does. Now, the reason a bumblebee flies is because it doesn't know that it can't. Now, that is the only reason. Now, if you could tell a bumblebee that in that shape, with that weight and those small wings, you cannot fly, it probably couldn't. Uh, it would probably become convinced if it ever looked in a mirror. But a bumblebee doesn't know that it can't fly, so it does. Now, it <laughs> defies every law. I mean, it looks ridiculous. So does a jumbo jet. I mean, it looks like a bumblebee in a way, just a bit longer. And there, yet, there's laws that, that defy reason. And what we have to understand is in our lives, there's a lot of things that hold us down and bind us, but 
when the spirit of life and a greater power than the power of sin and death becomes part of our lives for some reason even though it's illogical and we can't be free we find we are we suddenly find that we are set free from the power of sin and death and we can fly like a bumblebee now people will look at you and say but that's absurd how can you looking like you do possibly live free from sin well how can a bumblebee fly it's impossible it's beyond comprehension it's devoid of any understanding or natural law but that's the way it is it works and what we have to understand that's what's happened to us and it works for us we can walk free of sin because of what God's done in our lives and we're set free from the law now it doesn't mean we become lawless it just means we can live a different way we have the power we have the power to live a totally different way and that's the glorious thing about it because God has put that power within us now that power defies every other law it defies the law of sin and death it defies the law if you like of gravity it defies anything there is no way that sin can drive you and drag you and bring you down no matter what you think of your personality or your person no matter what you think of your upbringing and your difficulties no matter what you think of the the bondages in your life sin cannot destroy you or bring you down because there's a greater law in you and that's the law of the spirit of life and you've been married to that law and when you begin to understand that you begin to see well there are are vast possibilities if there's a greater law coming into my life because I'm really born of God's spirit because I've really been set free there is a greater law and no matter what circumstances appear I know that I can survive now when you come to that position and you know that God can keep you now how he keeps you defies understanding you can't understand how God keeps you I mean there was a man I'm trying to think of his name it's gone from me at the moment um was a Muslim and he got converted anyway I'll tell you the story this Muslim got converted and they decided that they would kill him so they crucified him and they crucified him and uh, after two days he hadn't died so they took him down and they threw him in a pit of snakes and he still didn't die and so they took him out and they tried to burn him and the fire wouldn't light and then all of a sudden he just saw a vision and he got up and he just ran away from them just like that now that defies the natural laws now I'm not saying that um, that you know is, is what will happen if they try it to you Um, but that's what happened now the natives were very upset when that happened 
And there are other people I know of who have had similar experiences where people have gone out to kill them and cannot kill them. There was a woman I knew called Jackie who um, was a friend of Ruth and mine and she went to the Amazon Basin. And so she went to one of these tribes in the Amazon Basin and uh, only women could go in because if you were a man you were immediately murdered. But women they didn't see as a threat. <laughs> well, they are natives and uneducated. Um, <laughs> uh, they didn't see the women as a threat. <clears throat> All right, Doris. Um, they they just they just considered women, you know, as trivia. And so this woman went in, and she was there for a time, and she couldn't speak their language because. Uh, no one had ever written it down. It was one of these Indian tribes that lived in, in the jungle and uh, they went about in what you would call little dress. There wasn't any, uh, just beads. And so she lived among them and I wouldn't fancy that but she, she lived among them and uh, for dinner they used to have monkeys and she found it rather hard to eat monkey. Uh, because, you know, when you saw them skinned, she said they looked a bit like children, you know, little hands and everything. She couldn't bear it at first, but anyway, they ended up eating monkey and snake. And you've got, if you're going to live in a tribe, you have to do that. And um, I, know, I know another two brothers, you know, went down the Amazon basin to another tribe, and one of the delicacies in that tribe was rat. And when they arrived there, the tribe, they caught two rats. And the chief had one, and they offered the other to this missionary. Unfortunately, he had a friend with him, so he, you know, preferring his brother, he offered it to him. He had to, <laughs> he had to eat the thing. Um, oh, dear. Doesn't bear thinking about, does it, really? <laughs> Hope you didn't eat too well tonight. Um, anyway, this woman, there she was in this tribe, and so they decided to, they, they kind of, talked to her and they said they wanted to decorate her. So they decorated her with all the kind of voodoo curses that they could. She didn't know what they were. Didn't bother her. Um, and then, in the evening, they fed her with supper and they put all poison in, deadly poison, the stuff they killed the monkeys with, you know. And they put all this poison, they diced all her food with it, and her friends, and they went down and they gave thanks for the food and they just ate it and the drink was all diced with poison. They didn't know. They just ate it. And the natives just sat there waiting because this poison would last, you know, within about 30 seconds or so, you started kind of grabbing your stomach and and that was it. You know, you, you were finished. Anyway, they looked and these women had ate the food and nothing happened. So they offered them some more. So they took it and ate it. And they were perfectly all right. Now these natives were most upset about that and they thought these, you know, these English people, obviously that type of poison doesn't work on them. And so the next day they tried a different type of poison and they were all right, you know, nothing affected them. In fact, they just kind of went on healthy. And they had this little hut and what really convinced the natives that there was something strange about these people was I think it was about two nights later, um, some ants came. Now ants, I can't remember what type of ants it is. They are ones that move in a column. 
soldier ants, they just move in a column and they just eat everything. Literally everything. And these soldier ants came and they went straight up to the hut. The pathway it cleared the vegetation and everything, went straight up to the hut. And then the soldier ants trail divided and they ate everything round the hut and went straight on in a straight line. And there was just this neat little circle around the hut. They didn't go near the hut, didn't eat anything in the hut. They just went round it. These natives came in the morning. They could see the soldier ants had been through the camp and someone else got eaten, but they didn't. Just made a nice little neat circle around the hut and off. And they thought, well, that's unusual. And then they tried throwing spears at them and shooting arrows. None of them hit them. And so they decided that these women had some greater power um, than they had. And you see, God's got a greater power. And often the, the laws of the natural are totally defied. And we don't understand that. We, we are very bound in our minds. But God has promised, if you ate, drink any deadly thing, it won't harm you. And he's promised to keep us. And there is a way in which we have a law within us that defies the natural law. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you should tempt, pro tempt Providence and try jumping off the Budworth Hall to prove that you've got a guardian angel uh, because he'll probably carry your spirit home and leave your body splattered on the pavement. Um, and, and that'll be the end of that. And Christ said that, you know, he says, tempt not the Lord thy God. That's how it's written when the devil said, cast yourself off the temple. So we don't do it. But if it happens that we don't know and someone comes and we just innocently drink it, you'll find God's protecting power will keep us and it will defy all the natural laws. And that's one of the wonderful things. God has a way of protecting his own. Now, those laws are totally violated, the natural laws. And in the sense of the spiritual, you will find the natural laws are violated again. There is no way that a man can change, really. Um, you ask someone who's a heroin addict, for instance, how he can change. He can't. If he's a mainliner on heroin, there's no way he can get off it. Um, basically, he can try psychology, psychiatry, he can try all sorts. I'm talking about a real mainliner. He won't be able to kick the habit. They can't. There's something in them that takes them back. And yet, I've met people, one man who was a, a heroin addict for 18 years, and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Christ, Jesus Christ could set someone free, and he believed that, and he responded to God, and just like that, no withdrawal symptoms, nothing. He kicked the habit of heroin and cocaine. He was a mainliner, and he never took the drug again, and was totally and utterly delivered, body, soul, and spirit. Now that defies the natural law, doesn't it? Hmm? There is no way that man can naturally do that. But God brought in a greater law. And it was a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now there are things in your life that you might say bind you. But the things that set you free is when the law of the spirit of life comes. And that law which is of the spirit of life, when that comes inside you, it will break the other laws. And it will set you free. It will bring death to the other laws. 
and you'll find you're married to another and there's no way you can go back. A man who's a kleptomaniac who pinches things, basically, there's no way of curing them. Someone who's a drug addict, there's no way of curing them. Someone who's um, well got mental problems, basically there's no way of curing them except by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Of course you can dope them up till they don't know what they're doing, but that's not cure. Might as well put them in a pickle bottle. Um, the thing is that you've got to have that law. Now when that law comes, it defies everything. I was reading about um, a man who, who, who was a great prayer and he, he was telling a story of old John Wesley. John Wesley was going somewhere in a ship and he was sitting in the ship reading a book going somewhere and this man came to him, uh, it was Taylor I think, Jeremy Taylor I think, who came to him and said, um, we're having terrible problems, we're not going to be able to go to where we're going because the uh, wind's in the wrong direction and you know it was sa a sailing ship in those days wind's in the wrong direction tide's in the wrong direction there's no way we're going to get there so John Wesley just put the book down and says oh well we'll pray about it and so he says dear God in heaven you who hold the winds in your hand and the seas turn it round we want to go to so and so it's your will turn the wind round turn the sea round and cause us to get there safely. Thank you, amen. And then he picked up his book and carried on reading. So this Jeremy Taylor went up to where the captain was in the cabin, and lo and behold, the wind had changed direction, the sea had changed, and within a few hours they made the port they were aiming for. Now, John Wesley didn't get up and go and see the captain and find out whether it had worked. He believed God. And he knew it had worked. Now there's other people like old Smith Wigglesworth. He was once invited to um, a house where there was ma this man who was totally demented. And this man was totally out of his mind. And Smith Wigglesworth had a tremendous gift of healing. So he walked into this house and sees this man in this room. And he says, Devil, get out of him! And the man remained as demented as ever. So Smith Wigglesworth walks out into the hall and uh, started putting his hat and coat on and the fellow follows him out and he's quite demented and, you know, shouting at him and abusing and everything. And Wigglesworth ignored him, just put his hat and coat on and went left him. An hour later the man was totally free. Now Smith Wigglesworth knew when he'd given the command that was it. The outward signs didn't bother him. And that's one of the amazing things. Another time he went to pray for someone who was um, dying and he prayed for this person and prayed that God had healed them and about two hours later a person came and said I'm sorry Mrs. So-and-so's dead. He said she's what? And he said, she's dead. So he marches straight to the house, throws open the front door, walks over the bed, grabs this corpse off the bed, sticks it up against the wall, and says, I told you to live, now live! And the woman came back to her senses and was totally healed. Now, don't you try it unless you've got that kind of faith. 
But that defies the normal law, doesn't it? Hmm? Now that's the way he used to go. There was another man I, I was reading about, and he used to have healing lines, and, and um, this, this uh, woman came up, and she looked as though she was pregnant. She'd got a growth in her stomach, and it looked as though she was pregnant. And this chap with a healing line took, takes one look at her, steps back, just steps back and just goes forward and punches her straight in the stomach in front of this whole congregation, about 4,000 people. And his fist kind of just got buried in her stomach, you know, with full force. And um, the woman was kind of surprised. <laughs> and then a look of shock because her dress just hung all floppy and the growth vanished. Now, don't try it unless you have faith. But that defies law, doesn't it? Hmm? Other people I've known who have uh, gone with, with healing, gifts of healing, and they've said to people to do things that the person couldn't do, and they've done them. I've seen a woman whose leg grew four and a half inches, and the only problem was finding her a pair of shoes to go home in because she hadn't had normal shoes before. And, and you find those things can happen. Now, they defy the natural laws. Now, of course, the physical laws, we, we all look at and we say, well, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. The spiritual laws that are defied, we don't always realize just how wonderful it is. When someone's got a deformed soul, which is just as deformed as a, a body, really, you look at people and basically inside, if you could see inside people, you can see a deformed soul, you can see its deformity uh, in the person, if you can see. Uh, and that is as much a miracle of healing that God somehow de-deforms them and puts them in the right shape as it is for their bodies to get healed. In fact, it's a greater miracle really isn't it? And there, there are laws in the spiritual realm that we tend to forget are there. Um, Wesley, another time, he was preaching in the field, and he had a big congregation, 10,000 odd, and it began raining and thundering. So he just looked up to heaven, and he said, rain, stop. And it did. And the congregation came back. They were beginning to run for shelter. And he told the rain to stop, and the rain stopped, and he carried on with his sermon. Now that defies the natural law, doesn't it? Um, and we have to understand that what Paul was talking about here is a law that is totally defied. The moral law and the moral code that we live by never kept us, did it? It never helped us to live right. Your conscience never really helped you do the right thing, did it? Hmm? What it did is sometimes it made you feel so bad you didn't always do the wrong thing. Uh, but it never helped you do the right thing. Now, who wants conscience goals? Because the conscience really, in a sense, becomes your condemnation, doesn't it? What condemns you? Your conscience or your heart condemns you, doesn't it? 
if you've done something wrong, doesn't it keep condemning you? And God's greater than your heart, isn't he? Hmm? It says in the Bible, if your heart condemns you, God's greater than your heart. But isn't it strange that your conscience and the law that works in your conscience never ever helped you live a better life, did it? Well, did it? What it helped you do was feel miserable about having done wrong. Hmm? Is that sore, isn't it? Hey, Rob? That's so. Just seeing if you were with me still, you know. Uh, your conscience, it bothers, it just bothers you and persecutes you and plagues you. Now, when you get the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the thing that happens is you're not governed by your conscience anymore. You're governed by the spirit of God. It's not your heart that's judging what's right and wrong and what you should and shouldn't do. But it's somehow the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets you free from all of that. You're not living a kind of tyrannical existence where a tyrant called your conscience persecutes you and if you dare try and step out of line your conscience plagues you and you feel guilty about it um, and you find that all the time when you see people you don't look them in the eye because your conscience is bothering you and you can remember this you should have done and that you should have done and you, you feel uncomfortable in some people's presences because you thought this about them or you did that or something else now that's your conscience and really a conscience is a persecutor isn't it hmm persecutes doesn't it does good uh, it persecutes and it makes people feel terrible now when we come into Christ Jesus the thing we're set free from is that terrible condemnation that curse is taken away and we find a greater law it's the law of God which sets us free and we don't bother about things anymore I don't feel bad about um, you know uh, looking people in the eye now it doesn't bother me um, well sometimes it does when I see what's in it um, but in their eye I mean but because uh, the eye is the window of the soul and sometimes when you see what's in people it bothers you but generally speaking you can look and uh, you should have a conscience void of offence and that's why you can walk in the body of Christ that's why it's so important to keep our channels clear as I was saying in the breaking of bread you know you should never have hold anything against a brother because what happens is very quickly barriers build up and soon condemnation will come. So you walk in freedom, total freedom from it. Hmm? Now, does that mean then that when you sin, you're not convicted? Hmm? No. Well, what's the difference? Think about it. What's the difference? shouldn't bring you up and make you repent
Are you sure? Doesn't your conscience do that? Judas repented himself. Huh? Well, he repented himself, that was true. Ah, it wasn't of God. Ah, that's it. So your conscience basically is not the voice of God. Is it? That's right. An angel does stir up your conscience. No, but you see, you've got to come under law before you can come to Christ, haven't you? And you see, your conscience can never deliver you. What you discover is when your conscience starts plaguing you, an angel does most certainly stir up your conscience. What happens is you feel worse and worse and worse, and you want to get out of it, but you can't. Now, nothing that your conscience does helps you out of it, does it? Hmm? And then you come out and say, who will deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, you, you understand that you are suddenly look in a mirror one day and you see you are a bumblebee and you can't fly. And you see that you're all in odd shape. And you realize that sin has got a grip on you and there's nothing you can do. Then you ask for a greater law to come and set you free. What we haven't understood very often is that we have to see ourselves for what we are and see that the dealings of God come by his spirit to us and he'll change us inwardly. It's as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. It's what goes on inside that God will do. That's what's important. See, we've always tended to look on the outside things, haven't we? We've looked on the superficial things where our conscience bothers us, but never really seen that it's our motives that are wrong. People will do the right things because of their conscience sake, but really there's no love in their hearts, there's no real desire. A lot of people uh, only live morally because they're frightened of getting found out. Isn't that true? It's not that they want to live morally, it's not that they have any moral code, it's that the fact that they're frightened that if they did do what they'd really like to do, they'd get caught. Isn't that right? Isn't that the way you lived? Hmm? No? That's the way most people live, isn't it? I mean, if you can fiddle the tax man and steal from him, you will, won't you? Before you're a Christian. Huh? Well, generally speaking, people do. Until they th they're worried, if you think you'll get found out, you won't do it. But generally, it's not because you feel there's some great... Of course, my wife was brought up in a household where she never did that. But I mean, I'm talking about the normal public, the normal people. <laughs> the normal people. She had other things that were not as hot. But the normal people... Now, now we, we look at it. How many people, when they go to, go to work, are, are told? I, I remember going to work in the sausage factory. And I went there for a time. And one of the things I learned was perks of the job. As soon as you got there, the one thing that bothered everyone was if you didn't take your perks. Now, your perks were 
nicking the food that you were doing uh, and everyone would take their perk. Now it must have cost the company a fortune. And I remember when I was on the, the uh, one time I, I had to move around the factory because I was a substitute in holiday times and one of the jobs was cooking the steak and kidney pies. And when the end of the evening came and the shift came, this chap gave me these two large steak and kidney pies. He said, there you are, mate. It's your perks. I said, what do you mean, my perks? He said, your perks. He said, go on, stick them under your coat. I said, what do you mean, stick them under my coat? He said, they're your perks for the job. He said, stick them under your coat, take them home. I said, no, I'll carry them normally if they're perks for the job. Oh, no, 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 the boss doesn't know about it. Said that this is just a deal we all have. I said, Well, I'm not taking them. Said either I walk out with them in my hand through the gate, or I'm not taking them. I'm not putting them under my coat. Said, But everyone does. I said, Well, I'm not. That's stealing. Oh no, no, no! It's not stealing. They know. They really know we do it, you know. But you just mustn't do it openly. But they accept that it's done. I said, Well. I think if they accept it's done, I'll walk out with them openly. Oh, you can't do that because you'll get into trouble. I said, well, if they know it's done and they accept it's done and they don't mind you doing it, why can't you walk out with it? Well, it's kind of an unwritten rule. I said, well, who's unwritten rule? Well, you know, everyone's done it. I mean, since I first came here, we've always done it. I said, well, count me out. And he said, you're not one of them religious nuts, are you? <laughs> yeah, immediately. I said, well, as a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> oh, he said, oh, well, he said, I suppose you, you'll think you're better than us just because you don't take them. I said, well, not really. I said, but I won't steal. And I, have you not found that in life, you know, the normal person, you go to a job and they'll tell you what perks you can take. Well, really, now you can take a 25-minute tea break. I mean, the boss only allows you five or ten minutes, but per perk of the job, or like the British Railways Af has left drivers, you know. They, they cut one chap out of the cab and they looked for his mate and he was at home in bed, wasn't he? One chap had his leg chopped off, the other chap was <laughs> having a night's rest and they, he was getting paid for a full shift. I mean, just a perk of the job. But I call that stealing and criminal. But it's accepted way of life in the world. Now, when we come to Christ, we come off all that and we realize there's a greater law than that and we can't do it. We can't be involved in it. We can't afford to be involved in it. And our whole lives change. It doesn't mean that we become idiots and we don't become wise uh, in, in business but what we do we find a greater law begins to work in us and I want to do that which is right don't you I find that my conscience would bother me now I do admit and I'll freely admit that I believe that everyone should pay the legal minimum requirement in tax no one should ever pay more than the minimum requirement now that is basically part of the law of the House of Lords. They passed a, you know, a, a judgment upon it, one of the Lord Justices, and said that everyone's entitled to pay the minimum requirement, never more. And that's the way we live. But we, we live according to taking advantages of every scheme, but we don't steal.
We don't cheat. We don't feed. Because we have a greater law in us. Now, Nicky Cruz, he used to be a gang leader in New York. And one of his favorite occupations, I remember him telling me when I met him, was he used to go into a drugstore, which in America is a chemist, um, which sells, well, they sell a lot more than just um, chemistry sets. Um, they, they're in, in America, they sell anything, a drugstore. And he used to go there, and he'd slip in there, and um, he'd go up to, to Neil the door, and where all the lights used to be, and then he'd knock off all the lights, and then he'd grab this big knife from out of his belt and go and stab the nearest person. Just stab him to death. And then he'd run off down the street, wiping the blood on his shirt as he ran. Now, that's not normal. <laughs> uh, not, thank God. Um, but that's what he used to do. Now, there was never, I said to him, well, didn't you ever kind of size up the person and work out, oh, no, it was the nearest one to the door? I said, well, didn't it ever kind of bother you what they were like? He said, oh, I never bothered to look. That, this way he was driven, devil-driven, you know, and he'd, he'd run off down the street and he'd be wiping the blood all over his shirt, the front of his shirt. Now, thank God, God saved him and changed him and transformed his life. And the power of Christ came in and totally delivered him. But up to that point, it was just a way of life to him. He, he'd been brought up in New York. They'd murdered, they'd shoot police, they'd do anything. And they were just murderers. And... It was part of the bravado of the gang that you had to murder someone every so often and off they'd go and murder someone. Now you look at it and you think, what a terrible way of living. Now the power of Christ had to come in and get hold of him and change him. And the power of Jesus Christ has to get hold of each one of us. All of us, we might look and say, well, I wasn't a Nicky Cruz. I've never been into a chemist shop, turned off the lights and stabbed the nearest person. Um, I wouldn't do this, I wouldn't do that. But inside, in our hearts, a lot of us find that there have been powers driving us and dementing us and tormenting us. And really, we might not have done the things openly, but inwardly, lots of people have done them. I remember one person who's here um, got annoyed that a, a neighbor took lilies out of a garden and shot them. Another person got angry, drove a car through a fence. Um, all sorts of people in this place have done odd things at times, haven't we? We've all done it. We've got into a rage and done silly things. Everyone does, up to the point where they're saved. But when the greater power of Christ comes in, it transforms you. Something like James Naylor. Um, he was whipped, he was dragged on a horse backwards through the town. He was whipped. And then they took him to a prison. They pulled out his tongue and they bored it through with a red-hot poker. And he stood up and he kissed the chap on the cheek who had just done that. Now, that's a different type of spirit than the spirit of the normal man, isn't it? Hmm? How you can kiss someone when your tongue's just been bored through with a red-hot poker, I'm not altogether sure, but he did. Uh, and... and the awful things that people suffer, and yet there's a power and a spirit that's so different. And what Paul's saying here is we're married to another. 
We've been divorced from the world, we've been divorced from our old man, but most of all we've been divorced from the law that has been a bondage to us, that law of sin and death. We've been separated from it, and because we're dead to it, we're married to another, Jesus Christ, and our whole lives and our whole beings have a totally different law governing them. Now you can't be married to Christ and married to the flesh. You can't be married to Christ and married to the old law. There has to be a death and separation. There has to be a breakage before you can come into the law of Christ. And so Paul writes here and says that, Wherefore, brethren, in verse 4, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And that is what Paul was talking about. All right? Do you all follow? Is it clear? In other words, you're a bumblebee with the ability to fly. You're a jumbo jet with the ability to take off. And you defy the natural laws. When people look at you, there is something within you that somehow is different. Now, it's not because you basically are any different inside. In your personality, you are the same person. But there is a power working in you that's the resurrection power of God that gives you the ability to walk free of those things. Where everyone else would fall for them, you won't. Now that is what Christianity is. And Paul says, you're married to another. And that's the whole picture. That's why he chose that analogy. He was trying to show that there's a death to one and a life to the other. So we'll go on with verse 5 next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. Lord, sometimes it seems so strange that your the natural law can be broken. And yet there's the glory that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free and makes me free and can keep me free from the law of sin and death. It can defy that terrible law. And because I'm married to another, I can be totally free from the awful ravages of the law of sin and death. And I can walk in that freedom. Lord, open each of our hearts to understand what it means to have your power working within us. Lord, let each heart come to an understanding. Let each mind comprehend that we can live according to the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Lord, by your Spirit, touch each heart, touch each soul, and keep us, Lord. In your grace we pray. Amen.